You are listening to Friends of Europe's podcast. Don't miss our debates on global and European issues that span political, economic, social and environmental challenges and follow our website at friendsofeurope.org. Good morning, colleagues. Very warm welcome, well, wet but warm welcome from here um, to this Friends of Europe uh, Security Summit um, on Europe's tough neighbourhood, urgent challenges in a complex environment, looking eastwards, southwards and inwards. Um, It gives me great pleasure to be your moderator in the first session, which is about looking eastwards. And we have a fine panel of contributors to this discussion. We've started a little bit late, which I apologise, but I, I, I do need to finish at 10 because one of our speakers absolutely needs to run off at 10 o'clock. Uh, so I do apologise. I'll try to make sure that um, we get the opportunity to have an interaction um, from the, you know, from, it, around this floor, as it were, uh, rather than simply have the contributors speak at you. Um, this, this event is very much framed around this report. I draw this to your attention, which is our Debating Security Plus report. It's um, the only, I think, global online brainstorm on security and defence matters, um, which we host every year. And we had some over 1,700 participants, 14 VIPs from across the world, partners, uh, uh, again, um, think tanks that we partnered with across the globe. Uh, And we literally did have uh, everyone from a citizen through to uh, ex-prime minister and president and ministers of state and everything in between. Um, It was, if you like, a crowdsourcing opportunity to think about what are the current and future challenges for security and defence and how do we take them forward. It wasn't just a conversation in its own right, it was a conversation with purpose insofar as we wanted to ensure we came up with recommendations and everyone was urged to think through what there might be. And here we have those ten recommendations up here flagged. And so um, the sessions, this event today is very much geared towards thinking about these recommendations and actually how do we take these forward. In this report, we set out not only the recommendation but a pathway in the short, medium and long term. And I really do encourage you to read this uh, and look at you know, whether, we, whether you think we have it right. Um, there's no um, science to this. Um, there isn't a, a, a recipe that we know is there for success. It is iterative and actually we know that all of this is contingent and, con- uh, con- and I suppose, contextual. Uh, con- uh, I suppose con- it's in the context of what's happening both politically, geopolitically, economically and socially. And so it's all, always, always contoured and underpinned by the understanding that actually some of these things will only have a lifeline or a lifeblood in them if politics and leadership uh, determines it or otherwise. So um, this morning, what we're going to do is we're going to speak very much about look, as I said, looking eastwards, but looking very specifically at these, um, these first two or three uh, recommendations, which is about the Convention on Terrorism, the global, uh, creating a global psycho, uh, cyber convention to set international definitions and rules. And what does it take to actually um, create the right infrastructure, both at Europe level, but also globally, around something which has fundamentally changed the rules of the game in terms of peace, defence and security. That is digital, and if you like, cyber, cyber security. And um, and all that 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 encompasses, everything from AI, hacking, disinformation, through to drones with war missile heads on on, on the face of them, for example, changing very much the the fundamental nature of what we understand to be um, the future of defence and security. So... 
Before I invite the speakers to uh, contribute, I'd like to start with a couple of quotes from um, some of our VIP contributors um, that uh, made the following comments. So we have Sven Mixer from um, the Estonian Minister of Foreign Affairs. In cyber, as in other domains, everything starts from a common threat assessment that allows us to define the capabilities we collectively need in order to counter them. The next is from Robert M. Lee, founder and CEO of Dragos. Smart application security and changing the security culture while benefiting from the native resilience of our infrastructure puts us in a place where we can succeed. And finally, Giles. We put you there deliberately. It was just a, it's just how it's worked out, I assure you. Pro-Kremlin disinformation seeks to weaken, destabilize Europe by exploiting existing misunderstandings and divisions or creating artificial new ones. So there we have it. We have, um, that's that context, as I said. And I said in, in the debate on Security Plus, uh, we had numerous calls to actually have some sort of convention on cybersecurity and defense. Um, one of the recommendations around this, um, Giles, and if I can invite you first, um, Giles Portman, head of East Stratcom Task Force at the European External Action Service. One of the kind of discussions we had was actually in, in taking this issue forward in terms of um, uh, cybersecurity, one of the pathway steps is that what about bringing together social media platform providers, media owners, uh, and a whole range of private sector owners that are behind the industry, if you like, media industry, um, and platform providers. Um, and Europe should bring those people together and create some sort of self-regulatory framework and actually work with the producers of information and news and see how you can come together and build standards and rules rather than imposing them or finding just smart technical ways to deal with it. What's your view on that? Okay, good morning, everyone. Thank you. Uh, in a word, yes. Good. And, uh, I'm glad to see we've got some traction already. And good. it's going to happen, I think, as well. Ah. Um, so uh, thank you for the invitation. Uh, and I think the reason it's going to happen is, is how far we've moved in two years, really. It was the time that my team's been oper in operation. I think when you go back to when we were set up just over two years ago, people weren't really talking about fake news uh, here in Brussels anyway. And now we're all talking about it all the time. And, of course, that's to a large extent because of things that happened and conversations taking place across the Atlantic. But I think it's also because of the work of, of my team in raising awareness of the challenge. Um, and I think we have raised awareness and therefore raised inoculation and immunity. But I think it's still a long way to go. And if I look forward a few years in terms of the challenges we face in terms of uh, bots, in terms of... Uh, cyborgs, artificial intelligence, increasing sophistication of fake imagery. I think this has only just begun. Uh, we face a much more difficult future in terms of distinguishing a true word from a false word, a true image from a false one. So the last couple of years feels like we've been catching up with the game, but I think looking ahead, we need to try and get ahead of the game. And, um, and four things that we need to do. And the first is to carry on talking about and analysing and raising awareness of the problem of fake news and disinformation. Uh, we'll continue to do that in our team, but I think uh, two important uh, developments over the last few days, really. The first is that the European Parliament has given us funding for the first time, 1.1 million euros, to continue to analyse and raise awareness of disinformation. Uh, but secondly, 
the Commission is now recognising that this is not just an external problem, it's something that's happening in Europe and affecting EU citizens, and we need a, a more holistic response. So there will be, in the year ahead, an interinstitutional uh, working group on fake news, which looks at it in its broadest context. And that includes not just talking government to government, but involving the public, involving civil society, and absolutely, crucially, involving the industry, the social media industry and media, to try and find exactly as you say, some uh, non-legislative uh, agreement on best practice uh, to, to recognise that over the past few years, social media has moved into the news world and millions of people get their primary news source from, from social media sites. Uh, but I think there are three other things that we need to do as well as tackle fake news and disinformation. One, we need to continue to focus on our own narrative and improving our own narrative and get better explaining what the EU is trying to do in its eastern neighbourhood and why this brings benefits and potential benefits to people. And that's what East Stratcom Task Force spends most of its time doing, but we need to do it more because you can be 100% successful in eradicating disinformation, but if you haven't got your own narrative out there, all you do is create a vacuum. So we need to improve uh, the explanation of our own policies. Uh, the second additional thing we need to do is continue to support good quality media uh, because we're only as good as the journalists who report on what we're saying and what we're trying to do. And I think if you look at objective uh, studies such as the World Press Freedom Index, you can see where the problems lie, not primarily in the EU member states, but more in our eastern neighbourhood. And we need to do more to uh, support and train and connect good quality journalists, objective, independent, investigative. And we need to support not just the journalists, but the managers of the journalists and the finance officers of the journalists, because this is a competitive business space and they need to be able to operate not just as journalists but as small businesses as well and to have the uh, financial security to plan beyond the short term. Uh, and the third thing that we'd like to do in East Stratcom is to continue to look east and communicate more in Russian. And we're doing that. We now run the EU's Russian language uh, website. We have a growing network of Russian and Russian-speaking journalists from across the political spectrum. And in doing that, what we're saying is we recognize that uh, Russian is a world language with mm -hmm. a special status in the EU because millions of EU citizens speak it as their home language. And we want to provide more real-time objective uh, information in Russian. So I think, you know, to sum up that we need to do all those four things. We need to continue to raise awareness of and understand disinformation but it doesn't work unless we also improve our own performance, our support for media, and our readiness to communicate more internationally. Sure. And all of that makes absolute sense, and you can feel a but coming. There's a sense of priority, isn't there? And actually, all that you describe is absolutely good policy sense, okay? And that's exactly what you might imagine. But there's a sense of urgency here, one would, one would imagine. And actually, you... Des I mean, from, from, what we, from our discussions, it was really clear that raising the money you've, you've described is great, but it's a drop in the ocean when you think about what actually needs to happen at member state level. And so there's something about 
timelines coordinating with member states, but actually at EU-wide level, the sense of bringing together, and let's think creatively, a hacker, a news provider, a social, you know, a platform provider, social media platform provider, very desperately, very soon, to really understand what's going on, and therefore you can provide that kind of brokering role and pathway role for member states, seems to me to be the kind of number one priority. But you're saying there's a number of things you're doing, but I'm, I don't get a sense of when you're going to do some of this. Sorry to be challenging, yeah. but... But I think people want to know, given how urgent this issue is in terms of how, what's, what's actually affecting our democracies to a, you know, to a very great extent. Yeah, and I think it's important to, to recognise that the East Stratcom Task Force is not, a, is not a panacea. It can't do all of this on its mm. own. Mm. What we've managed to do over two years is, first of all, understand the nature of the problem and, secondly, raise awareness of it and improve our own communications and do these other things like support free media and, and, and communicate more in, 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 in regional languages. But we can't do it all alone. There was a recent <coughs> study that showed that 12 out of 28 member states have taken specific action to address the problem of disinformation over the last year, but that's still 16 that haven't. Uh, and what we can do is see the, the big picture and make some of the linkages and share some of the best practice, but we cannot be a substitute for member state action. And when it comes to the big picture of engaging with industry and bringing in uh, the public, civil society, and recognising this as a continent-wide challenge which stretches across private and public sectors, we need the other institutions of the EU to be involved. So I think that's why it's so important that the Commission is now doing this. in particular you're referring to? The so most importantly, I mean, the European Parliament has always supported us politically and now financially. But most importantly, it's a challenge across the DGs of the Commission. And now that's exactly what we see with this interinstitutional working group to look at the broader problem of fake news. All right, thank you. Francesca, you've been desperate to come uh, in. Just very briefly, though. Just so a couple of quick practical points. So so just to introduce it, Francesca yes. Spidiet. Spilleri, um, Senior Fellow for Cyber Leadership at Salve Regina University's P Appel Centre for International Relations and Public Policy. Uh, mm. Just two quick points. I think uh, actually the European Union has a great opportunity to bring together a social media platform and news outlet, mm -hmm. not just to discuss and bring um, transparency uh, to the issues, but to also studies. Do they actually have the right standards and policy to identify when their platform, whether online or on, uh, traditional broadcasts, are being used mm -hmm. uh, for propaganda campaign? It's beyond just a false narrative. In a lot of cases, we're seeing real issues being uh, inflamed by additional armies of bots and trolls that use the social media platforms. So I think there is a great opportunity for the European Union to bring those uh, platforms, traditional and social media, together. And second of all, this might be for the member states, not to forget education. We are training a new generation of digital natives, but they don't necessarily um, are cyber savvy. They don't necessarily know how to go beyond the headlines, how sure. to look at the sources of the information information they're reading. So media literacy and thinking critically should be part of all the education program. And again, the European Union can have a, a, a role in influencing member states. But unfortunately, education is a matter of subsidiarity. So the competence of the EU to infect or affect stuff in education member state level is, can be quite tr troublesome and difficult. But I absolutely agree with your point. There has to be a way in which the EU can 
provide or shine a light on what could happen in education for sure. I'm going to come back to you in a moment. But if I can, Xander, um, European young leader also for Friends of Europe, but uh, you're all formerly, I mean, actually, in terms of professional, uh, your professional life, your parliamentary secretary of state for um, EU affairs at the Latvian Ministry of Foreign Affairs. Um, so it's important to have you here from your perspective where you sit strategically, geopolitically in Europe. Um, how, what's your take on some of these uh, issues around cybersecurity and, and the challenges, the digital challenges that you're, you're facing and how you're responding to them in particular? And the whole issue of, as you've mentioned in some of the things you've said previously, Russia's cyber defence capabilities, etc. So a few words from you on, on, on your perspective, given where you sit. Thank you and a very good morning. Um, when I think about security situation and look eastwards, uh, actually, I, I, indeed, I have to think immediately about the uh, hybrid threats and uh, cyber attacks. So um, it's for sure digital technologies and, and Internet are playing a more and more important role in the societies and economies. So economies advance our lives and at the same time make us more vulnerable. And uh, we have to, to think how to live through that. So uh, these cyber attacks, uh, disinformation campaigns, uh, attacks on media uh, have actually become a commonplace. And uh, we are just becoming aware uh, how much harm can they do to the democracies and how uh, they can actually uh, uh, short-circuit our democracies. So these cyber incidents are becoming more and uh, more frequent and with wider uh, surface uh, of, of their impact. Um, particularly when coordinated and uh, targeted cyber attacks are used by state-controlled entities uh, for political goals, uh, it can lead to devastating effects uh, for, for societies, infrastructures and governments. So, for example, the cyber attacks on the Ukraine's energy grid uh, have caused serious problems and uh, security risks uh, for the society at that time. So I think there is a legitimate uh, question how has uh, Russia's approach uh, to cybersphere uh, changed uh, the situation and the game. Mm -hmm. um, as I see it, Russia's use of hybrid methods both uh, at our borders and in wider uh, neighborhood uh, creates uncertainty and unpredictability uh, uh, about security in Europe and uh, influences us uh, uh, incredibly. So uh, this combination of different uh, means of uh, influence, cyber attacks, information campaigns, uh, military activities uh, we saw in Ukraine are also evident in uh, Europe today. So recently the exercise uh, ZAPA 2017 mm -hmm. took place along our borders um, I dare to say today that uh, they exercise did not cause direct military threats. At large extent, uh, due to uh, allied presence in Baltics. But at the same time, uh, we should not pay attention not only to presence or absence of direct military threats, but also to the test of electronic warfare and hybrid elements uh, we experienced. So uh, in the Baltic uh, states, uh, we have dealt with politically motivated cyber attacks uh, against government networks and uh, the media actually already for a long time. Uh, ever since restoring the independence, uh, Latvia has experienced uh, elements of hybrid campaigns 
and uh, that have uh, intensified in, 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 in recent times after the Russia's uh, uh, aggressive, uh, aggression against Ukraine. So, for example, in 2016, uh, the CERT-LV, so the IT Security Incidents Response Institution, has registered almost 60,000 60, uh, incidents that include 3,000 or 5% uh, of them of high-priority incidents. But what's even more interesting is that according to the estimates of the CERT-LV, approximately 600 incidents uh, last year were politically motivated. So uh, our long-term experience actually has resulted in a high level of awareness of hybrid threats and uh, increased attention for uh, raising um, our ability to, 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 to uh, face it uh, and for raising resilience and developing capabilities. So uh, we do recognize that uh, countering the hybrid threats is uh, at very high at our political agenda. Uh, it's uh, homework we have to do. And actually, Latvia and Estonia are at the forefront uh, of developing effective uh, cyber defense capabilities and boosting resilience uh, against cyber attacks. We have one of the best uh, cybersecurity systems worldwide. And in Latvia, we have established an effective national framework for cybersecurity, uh, both in terms of operational capabilities uh, as well as comprehensive whole-of-government approach to cyber uh, policy. And we are now uh, increasing uh, our efforts in fostering whole-of-society approach, mm. uh, actually something that was mentioned also by, the cha uh, by, by, by my colleague. So an awareness rising in the, is, is a key in the process, uh, and we are actively uh, engaging with private sector and society to inform, uh, to uh, explain, and to teach about safety and security in, 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 in cyberspace. Mm. And what I believe really is uh, to be really efficient, it's uh, very important uh, to have high level of awareness <coughs> and high level of cyber hygiene from the school children up to the very senior uh, top level national security officers. And these are the topics we are working uh, on, uh, and a lot can be done at the EU and NATO level, and a lot has been done at the EU and NATO level also officially, but I will stop here. No, sure. And that's what I want to ask you, because it's great what you've described, and you know, you, you find that you know, yourselves, Estonia, are pathfinders in this game in terms of being able to really create a kind of a whole government approach to some of these issues, and you can see that, absolutely. But we know in this territory, in this issue of cyber, is that you can't go it alone, actually. You, it, you have, there's this kind of a dependency factor that you can't avoid, uh, and because it sees no, this issue has no border, in a sense. And that's why people are calling it from our report and our debate was that, you know, creating this global convention with international rules and standards. Currently, you have the, the much-vaunted, you know, uh, Cyber Defence Agency, you know, Juncker's speech about, you know, cutting up some sort of agency. You've got the European Defence Agency. You've got all these kind of nature of institutions and agreements that have taken place in the past 18 months around defence and security. What hope do you have for those to help this particular issue from your perspective? Or is it too early to tell? Perhaps I'm answering my own question. What do you think? Because actually this, this requires a Europe-wide but also Europe-global partnership on some of this. And it's great what you're saying, but what hope do you have in terms of what do you think needs to happen 
if you're going to get the kind of certainty and safety and stability that you require? Uh, definitely, we cannot solve at a national level. We need to go over the borders and over the institutions. We have to involve everybody. We have to cooperate uh, in the EU, between the EU and, and, and NATO and, and even broader. So, of course, there is uh, the idea of this uh, global convention. I'm a bit skeptical about that. There's no point. If you think that actually it's not going to work and it's not going to actually make a difference, then say so. That's and that's not because be it's not uh, going to work. Mm. But the main thing is uh, to have the same uh, laws and principles we apply to other uh, aspects of our life also apply to the cyber domain. Mm -hmm. So uh, what we believe, it's not a good idea to um, create a completely new approach to the cyber mm -hmm. That could co uh, cause a situation that we are trying not to apply the, the general, for example, um, human rights to the area. So we have to develop the principles we have in other areas and domains to the cyber, but not, so to, cre example, but not to create okay. a, a parallel systems. Okay. All right. So broaden but not uh, another one. So like looking at you know, the Geneva Convention and actually seeing how do you apply that or other agreements internationally that have been reached on some of these human rights issues or conventions, is to extend those and adapt those is, is, your, is your view? Rather yeah, we than have creating... to apply the existing ones to the cyber and not to create uh, another one. Okay, all right. Let's, I'm, I'm sure people have views on this uh, and I'll come back to uh, some of these issues in a moment. But uh, moving on, Igor. Um, you're Deputy Director at the Department for European Cooperation at the Russian Ministry of Foreign Affairs. Um, and, you know, I can imagine that, you know, uh, you and, your, and the country you represent is always at the forefront of discussions uh, of these, of these, of these, in, in these contexts. And I don't want to get into technicalities about, you know, what you've done, what they've done, etc., uh, and have a kind of conversation which is about defending one's own argument. I'm more interested in understanding what would it take... What are the conditions um, or um, requirements of, to create a level of mutuality between Russia and Europe and what the wider world? What would it take from your perspective? Because we seem to be caught in this kind of vice um, and we can't seem to move forward to a certain extent. And, you know, I just think to myself, we've done a number of things uh, and we have, we've learned from history and sometimes we need to all grow up and have a different aptitude for leadership. But what are the conditions, from your perspective, to create mutuality between Europe and Russia and the wider world? In five minutes. I will try. Thank you. Thank you very much and good morning to everybody. But 30 seconds, just to repeat some words of my colleagues. Uh, Russian approach influenced us incredibly. Uh, it brings devastating effect for our societies. So how weak is this society or this democracy if it brings devastating effect? Uh, I thank uh, Mr. Portman for recognizing that Russian is a world language. It's the only positive element that for this mutuality, for this mutuality. But in fact, uh, for me, and I'm from European cooperation, I will develop this issue a little bit later. What we are discussing here, at least at the first time, is a big brainwashing machine. And all the time of my life, we were discussing the freedom of expression, freedom of press, and now 
finally we are coming that we must nourish journalists, we must nourish agencies, we must nourish uh, social media to go where? Who are the judges and what kind of criteria you are applying to what is truth or what is lie, what is fake news or what is not fake news? So it is a very serious question. And if we are speaking about mutuality, uh, and here maybe I uh, say one word on these rules of cyber, of international uh, information security. Mm -hmm. If the proposal is to extend the EU rules, EU and NATO rules all over the world, it's something to fail. Since 20 years, Russia is proposing and is developing a serious and substantial debate in the UN, and we are ready to continue it, but not as extension of EU and NATO rules mm -hmm. to all over the world. Mm -hmm. The world is not limited to, to, to this very nice part of the globe. Mm -hmm. But as I said, I'm from the cooperation. Yes, sir. I'd like you to focus on my question in particular. Yes, I will focus, yeah. but uh, I have also my reactions. Indeed you do. And uh, I, but I, but I want thank to, you. This is, yeah, I want us to move beyond well, that. Well, I will tell you some fake news from the cooperation. <laughs> okay. Uh, despite all the strange situation we have in December last year, five agreements on cross-border cooperation were signed with Latvia, Estonia, Finland, Sweden, and Norway. EU is funding this cooperation, uh, is giving 200 million euros, Russia 86 million euros for our contacts, for creating this network of regional cooperation, of confidence between frontline states, as they call themselves at least Estonia and Latvia, and ourselves. And until the end of this year, we are preparing and we will, from our side, be ready to sign these agreements with uh, Poland and Lithuania. Is it fake or not? But you do not know it, probably. Uh, last week was very interesting in this sense, because there was an important decision of the Assembly of the Northern Dimension. Probably you do not know that there is a Northern Dimension as a common policy, still a Northern Dimension as common policy of EU, Russia, Norway, and Iceland. And the decision was to resume project cooperation based on the uh, partnership, Environmental Partnership Special Fund, where the biggest contributors is the EU and Russia. So the life is somewhere else. The life is not in the debate if the news is fake or not and how shall we promote it. So clearly steps, are you pointing to the positive... Yes, I'm pointing that... that what, my question is, what does it take? What are the conditions that are required to create mutuality? Sincere dialogue, to know, to listen and to cooperate. And to take the partners, somebody not to follow somebody else, but to listen and respect its point of view. It's a good old-fashioned relationship building, basically. If you, if you wish. Yes. Establishing trust, having dialogue, being able to respect but each I, other. But I, I uh, quote these two examples that mm -hmm. uh, there are member states which are really interested mm -hmm. in this cooperation at the grassroots level, at the people-to-people -people contact, and it is going on. It is going on in the north. I am sure it will be going to the south. 
Why not? And with that, we are recreating the confidence without fake news and without this frontline spirit. With NATO, we are ready to go ahead in the sincere. Uh, we, we, there are a lot of proposals from our military uh, officials. And in fact, these contacts with military are absolutely necessary. In the EU, well, our uh, commercial exchange have fallen twice. But now, 25% in eight of increase in eight months. So something is changing. But uh, we are ready to these, to these changes, and it's our proposal. We have not stopped any format of cooperation. Somebody have done it. Okay. Thank you very much. Thank we'll, you. We'll come back to you. I'm sure there's questions uh, in regard to what you've said also. Um, last but not, but not least, Francesca. Um, it has to be very short. Two sentences. Just we, we just experienced a nice example of disinformation. The few of my words were taken and slightly changed. What I said is that when coordinated and targeted cyber attacks are used by state-controlled entities for political uh, goals, it can lead to devastated effects. I never said that it has been done already. Actually. Okay. Uh, our relative uh, vulnerability, the closeness to Russia and the Russia's interest to Im have influence in the region has been transformed into our strengths. Mm -hmm. The Latvia and Estonia have one of the strongest cybersecurity systems in the world. So we are really strong in that. Thank you. Thank you. Francesca. Yeah. Um, we much talk about the global convention uh, on, on cyber. Uh, but one of the key bywords for now and to the future is resilience. How do, you how do you create greater resilience of infrastructure, policy making and response, preparedness of states, etc., uh, on this? Because it's going to be key uh, as we move forward. Uh, because the level of unpredictability in our lives is such that actually resilience has to be the way forward in terms of how we adapt, prepare and plan into the future. From your perspective, what stops us from doing that? And also, what do you think the barriers are and how we might overcome them to a certain extent? Some of your views and some of the work you've done. So there are a couple aspects to your question. Mm. The first one is about coming to some sort of agreement yeah. on norms of behavior in cyberspace. Yeah. And while I very much believe in diplomacy and those efforts, uh, so far, most of the effort we've seen to establish some kind of norms or definitions have mostly failed, um, and uh, not, uh, the, the latest I'm sure we all have heard is the UN uh, government, governmental group of experts, the UNGGE, effort that have lasted over seven years, and they were promising to finally come to agreements among some of the key members of the UN, including Russia and China and the United States, European members. There was a lot of momentum. There was an agreement. The actual international law did apply in cyberspace, and then everything fell this summer when the United States and others had proposed that also the, the law of conflict should apply in cyberspace. So I am actually a little bit skeptical about these international agreements, and mostly because when we talk about governance in cyberspace, we first need to agree on what are we trying to govern. We, as country, often talk past to each other because we have different objectives. So what are we trying to govern? Is that the free flow of information? Is that how we use the Internet? Um, is it bringing transparency for mm, stability? 
security and security issues? Is it because we want to provide internet access to developing countries? So the Global South, for example, we're promising them through uh, development goals that if they have an um, increased internet uptake, they'll have increased opportunities for job growth, um, education and sure. access. Can I just yep. a second? This is kind of challenging. But let's, let's just take a okay. simple one, yep. public harm. Public, public harm, harm, public harm, mm -hmm. public harm in terms of hospitals not being able to operate, yep. banking systems not being able to. If you just define it in broad terms, actually one of the key objectives is to ensure we prevent public harm. Do you think that yes. could work? Absolutely, but that was part of the agreement that the UNGG group had come to. However, mm. while on one hand, on paper, we agreed that uh, information communication technology, ICTs, and the Internet should not be used to conduct attacks against the critical services and infrastructure, then on the other hand, we have seen the same countries that agree to those norms conducting those uh, efforts and, and conducting those attacks. And we're not calling out the bad behavior. We're not refraining from those bad behavior. So if we, on one hand, say one thing, but in reality, those same countries actually conduct those behavior, the new norm, the new customary norm that we are actually giving life to is anything goes. And this is not good for the United Nations, the European Union, or any other international organization that is seeking peace, stability, okay. and security around the world. Um, to your question about uh, resilience, I think first and foremost we need to educate our leaders uh, across the world and in Europe um, that cyber security and cyber resilience is two sides of the same coin. On one hand, we need to ensure a need for national security, but on the other hand, there is also a need for economic prosperity. And we need to balance those needs. I see a lot of discussion here about national security because of recent events. But Europe, more than any other region in the world, depends on the Internet and ICT for their modernization, uh, their innovation, their connections. And so if we don't think about the um, economic losses due to cyber insecurity, we'll never get to that balance that will bring okay. us to cyber resilience. And what that will require at the European level and within each member state is having a strong framework of um, you know, national cybersecurity strategies with security, privacy, and resilience at its core, a strong incident response capabilities coordinated across the, at least the European Union and with other countries, information and intelligence sharing, real strong, well-funded cyber research and development, okay. Diplomacy that includes also trade negotiation and cyber issues, and ultimately also development of capabilities within military and intelligence services. All of these components are components of cyber resilience. Uh, of course they are, and I think you, know, you, you make that point very well, and I want to open it up to the floor, but how optimistic are you? Give me one to ten of all of that coming together in the next three years. Given you've just come from the States, yep. you're working here now, and given the relationship with the States, on, I mean, the, the basic sense mm -hmm. of information sharing at intelligence service yep. level does not happen currently, given the scale of attacks we've had and the threat of terror we have. We don't, ha do not have a, you know, information sharing capability that actually helps us. What's your sense of confidence, I one to five? I think we're increasing awareness about the need for real, practical, okay. real-time information sharing. I think there are groups like uh, um, CERT, FIRST, the Computer Emergency Response Team, are increasing that coordination around the world, Interpol, Europol, on cybercrime. So I'm a little more hopeful on okay. the information sharing improving than I am on a Geneva Convention on some kind okay. of uh, global cyber right. treaty. Thank, thank you all. I'm going to open it up to the floor. And I do apologize. I mean, uh, we started late, and I just wanted to make sure we got the full benefit of our contributors.
questions from the floor. Anything that kind of, you know, irked you or you want to question or if you have a view on. Um, say who you are, but obviously be short and brief if you can, please. That would be really helpful. There's a mic coming your way. Or actually you should have a microphone. If you, it's like a, one of those airplane seats. You just have to lift it up and in there you'll find a magic. There you go. You are? Nicholas Novartis from the Ludwig Meissner Center for European Studies. Hello? This one doesn't. No, okay, this works. Hi, Nicholas Novartis from the Wilfried Martin Center for European Studies. Uh, interesting discussion, uh, and I feel that most of the pan panel seem to agree that there is a problem in the area of cybersecurity and. Uh, all of you also agree that uh, something needs to be done. And, and um, some of the ideas that were proposed were like pushing our own narrative, more uh, supporting uh, good quality media, uh, looking eastwards and communicating in Russia, and then, and then also media literacy here in Europe. But um, what I feel is missing is that uh, there seems to be a tacit acceptance that um, cyber attacks uh, in, in, in Europe is something that we, at least in the short to medium term, have to have to accept, and I'd like to ask, like, if we also need some kind of, uh, perhaps a cyber deterrent strategy, do we also need to kind of improve our, uh, our ability to detect cyber attacks and then perhaps, like, come up with a strategy of how to respond in order to uh, deter them? Thank you. Okay. I'll, I'll, I'll come back to that in a moment. Any other questions from the floor? Surely. Ah, great. Here you go. So, again, if you kind of open the side of your seat, you should... Have a microphone there. That's it. You push that button. Um, hi, so I'm Anna Pisonero from the Spanish News Agency, Europa Press. I mean, um, I'd, I'd be very interested to know if from the EU and Russia perspective, it would be nice also to have NATO, but there's no one in the panel. But is there any kind of cooperation possible between EU, NATO, and Russia to deal with these kind of cybersecurities incidents because we have the accusations from both sides, one accusing that Russia is behind, Russia denying this. We've, on top of the traditional, more traditional cyber attacks, we've had the whole new fake news, disinformation campaign stories. Um, I know that particularly in Spain there was this uh, relevance now with the Catalonian case. Did Russia also affect or not? Also denied by Russia. So is there, is there I mean, from, from policy responsible people mm -hmm. in charge, mm -hmm. should there not be a dialogue and a cooperation and to see, look, this is how we have to deal with this? Okay. And mm. No, thank you. Any, anyone else? Gentleman here. Again, the same thing. Press the button. Thank you. Uh, looking to the panel. <laughs> Who are you? Sorry. Uh, Jacques Rosier, you Atlantic Association, Belgium. Looking to the panel, two-thirds are younger people than myself, and I heard education of senior leadership. Could you just give some of the tips? Because there is a lot of way to be educated, uh, and most of us think already we are educated because we use those tools. But uh, what would be practically, from a younger perspective, uh, the message to the leaders, what should they comply to, or should they just give their job to the younger generation 
Um, what a good question. Thank you, sir. I'm going to start with that, actually. So, um, Giles, I know that you need to leave at 10. Um, uh, and I know that, you know, I, I want to make sure you get to do that because you've got another speech to make. But can you address some of these issues, particularly, I mean, I won't ask you to deal with the issue about, you know, what can you teach your elders or what should your elders, if I can put it that way, what do you know, what's, what's the issue for leadership uh, in terms of it, it, what it needs to learn about the current situation? But the issue around deterrence and the capacity for deterrence in terms of really thinking about how we can um, take much more of a, uh, a foresight approach to this issue, in particular in terms of deterrence about cyber. But then also this thing about the capacity for cooperation in terms of what, as, 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 as you were saying from Spain, is there space and can you see green shoots of cooperation on this agenda with, between your EU, NATO and Russia? Uh, well, um, of course, until recently, the EU and Russia were pursuing 20 years of attempts at closer strategic cooperation, mm. uh, and that was halted by events in Ukraine and Crimea. So, of course, mm. we would hope that there's a way through that, and there's a roadmap for how we get to that. And, of course, in, in, in trying to explore a better future, the EU needs to respect Russia. But Russia also needs to respect... EU values and EU people. <laughs> and what we see, unfortunately, is uh, a, a daily barrage of, of denigration of, of European values and policies and politicians. Um, and so it's quite hard to see a way forward while that continues. Um, and people sometimes ask me, what's the end result, the end objective of East Stratcom? It's to do ourselves out of a job. It's so we can go and do something else. That there is no disinformation to raise awareness of. That the EU is communicating perfectly. That we have wonderful media on the European continent. So uh, it's going to be a lifetime job, basically. None of those Let's are there at the that. moment. Yeah, yeah, so I'm yeah. afraid... I, I don't want to end on a negative, depressing sure. note, but mm -hmm. I'm afraid that's how I see the situation at the moment. Okay. All right. Okay. Um, any kind of comments about the leadership issue from your perspective? Uh, well, just a comment on the education it issue. Is key, absolutely, uh, yeah. And, and as you, uh, I think you said, or panellists said, you know, this is very much for member states. This is where we wouldn't get involved as East Stratcommon, and I imagine the Commission's involvement would be limited. Uh, but I do think there's a, a role for promoting greater media literacy among young people. And what we see is that young people may be far more tech-savvy and used to social media than the older generation, but they're also a lot worse at distinguishing real news from fake news and genuine news content from sponsors and paid content. So their strength, their, the fact that they're so used to working with social media is also their weakness. So I think there is definitely a role uh, for, for education, but, uh, but very much for member states rather than us. Indeed. Okay. But do you feel that the current leadership in Europe um, um, has a sense of what's required of it to move forward with a sense of urgency on this particular issue about cyber security? Uh, well, I think uh, yes. So, I mean, in terms of, of my team, you know, the, uh, sometimes I'm asked, who, who are the most supportive member states, who are less supportive? The fact is there's consensus mm. at heads of state and government level of 28 member states. That was the decision to set up the team. It's been reinforced and reaffirmed by successive 
FAC conclusions. Um, what we do is enshrined in the EU global strategy in the High Representative's five guiding principles. So, so the consensus and the roadmap is very clear. But as I said at the beginning, we came to this late yeah. and we've been catching up. Sure. So we've got to try and get ahead of the game, not just play catch up. Sandor, do you have any particular comments in, in terms of the deterrence issue, education and leadership, uh, but also cooperation? Um, when we talk about the education and knowledge, I think all of us, so young and old, men and women, presidents and, and, and soldiers and ballerinas and farmers, we need to update our knowledges about cyber uh, sphere every day on a daily basis. We cannot rely on our knowledges we have today or had yesterday because the cyber sphere, the cyber domain is changing from day to day. And I think that's the main thing that we acknowledge that we need to keep a really high level of cyber hygiene and it demands us to update our knowledges and re-educate ourselves every day actually. And so uh, it includes also media literacy, definitely, and, and critical okay. thinking. So uh, maybe it's easier to, 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 to um, remind about that, the, the school pupils, but it's really important also for ourselves not to think that we know already everything, but we, because we cannot know what will happen tomorrow. So we will have to up, uh, update and to, to adapt. Okay. Francesca, you wanted to come yes, in on this. Uh, so quickly, on the cyber defense, there are actually a lot of efforts and discussion going on both within NATO, the U.S. Department of Defense. We realized we failed at deterrence, especially uh, during 2016, the election, etc. cetera. Uh, but that's where you need the uh, private sector to come in. In the United States, 90% of critical infrastructure are owned by the private sector. You mm. cannot stop a cyber attack without bringing in internet service provider mm. um, and others. They own the pipes and the fiber optics and the the actual infrastructure where those attacks are uh, conducted. Um, so first of all, that's for some great recommendation you have on bringing in the private sector in all of those discussions. Um, to cyber leadership, a topic dear to my heart. I'm also a professor and researcher, and that's a core of my research. We need to first and foremost realize that cybersecurity is not just an IT issue. It's very much a legal issue, a governance issue, operational issues. You can hire great people to be part of your team, and they'll educate you. But um, one of the things that I do, it's turning a lot of very technical terminology and concept into business terms, into security terms. So the, the leaders I engage with, whether they're in the U.S. Congress, or state um, house and representative or uh, leaders of different corporations in the boards of directors, understand how to balance, again, security with business need, the security with national security, um, issues and economic prosperity. Uh, there is a lot that we can do to uh, teach our leaders why this matters. And, okay. first, and that starts okay. with mapping mm. our internet infrastructure dependencies and vulnerabilities. It's not the cyber. It's not the cyber domain as a silo, as so something separate from others. Actually, refrain from using that uh, cyber domain terminology because it's very much cyberspace, a substrate of every domain. I understand why for defense purposes, 
purposes. We need to define it as a domain for operational tactical reason. But when we talk to the public, to our leaders, make them understand that it's very much a substrate that encompasses everything that we do okay. and that all our critical services and infrastructure depend on it. So that they feel that it's not just the silo issues relegated Indeed. to the IT expert or the defense expert. It's most definitely going to be, well, it is an underpinning issue uh, across the piece. Um, Igor? May? Of course, absolutely. So about the detention of cyber attack, it's a very important question, and we are always insisting on giving us elements to investigate what you call Russian attacks. Because today everybody considers that Russia is attacking, but uh, from one side we are condemning these kind of attacks, and it was done officially. From the other side, we are always proposing to give us concrete elements to, to investigate or investigate it together. But from this moment, from this very moment, the answer is, no, it's a secret information, we cannot share it. So if it's a secret information, so you cannot show it to, even to your public. Uh, the need, uh, the, uh, our relations with the EU, the deterioration came before the Ukrainian crisis, crisis. And the Ukrainian crisis is one of results, or partly, in the Ukrainian crisis, one of the elements is the deterioration of our relations with the EU. It came before. We can, we can look year by year, but uh, let us say from 2008, 9, or maybe 10, the relations were not the relations of 2003. From your perspective, what's the trigger point there then? You go for 2008, and what are you specifically referring to? Is there an event or an issue that you felt that was the trigger point? No, it's, it's, it's a substance of our dialogue, mm -hmm. substance of exchanges at the level of these instruments which were created by, by the agreement, the, the basic agreement that expired in 2010, but which is, is always in, uh, in, uh, in, in, uh, always functioning because we have now the new one. Uh, even the question of visa, which the dialogue started in 2003, Everything was ready in practice 2008-9. Then uh, the answer was that the visa regime cannot be, uh, the free visa regime cannot be given or offered uh, before the uh, focal, focal states of the Eastern Partnership and so on and so forth. So, uh, but it's a topic of another conference, the history, the story of no, our sure, relations. Sure. But, but it issue... was in our percept, in our yeah. understanding, it was before Ukraine, okay. for sure. Uh, as for, uh, as for the, the denigration of European politicians, if you try to read what the European press uh, write about our politicians, I believe that there is uh, a good big part of job for, for Russian Stratcom, if, if we had. If we had. Uh, with regard to, yeah, to, to the education and young leaders, you know, uh, the message uh, which was coming always from the, our Western colleagues in the debates, for example, in the Council of Europe, which is the organization that, that offers to the member states of the EU, non-EU and Russia, a common ground, common legal ground of cooperation, was the freedom of choice. So uh, we were told that, first of all, let them make their free choice, and please do not intervene in this choice. Now you are making the, uh, just the opposite. So, and the basic question that uh, our Spanish, uh, Spanish colleague put, 
not regarding the Catalonia because I do not believe in this kind of conspiracy unless Russia is responsible for everything going in the world, not only in Europe. Uh, so it's really necessary to cooperate and to, to have a dialogue. And your remark that in the UN we are speaking about one thing and then we are attacking, please give us evidence of this attack. Sure. And let's discuss it in the UN. Okay. Let's, do it. let's do it seriously, not, not like it's done now. Sure. But I, we, I, we have a lot of proposals for this, for this cooperation, and I invite everybody to support this kind, because okay. without this dialogue, we will never come to, to, the, to the solution. Thank you. Thank you all, and I'm afraid I'm going to have to wrap this session up. It's evident that uh, we have a tough neighbourhood issue, we have a tough relationship issue, and we need to really get some marriage counselling in place in different ways, for sure. But also we need, I think, leadership to step up to a very different kind of capability. In our report, uh, again, I encourage you to read the Debate Security Plus recommendations report, we say actually the 21st century will require a different kind of leadership capability and management capability that, that balances prevention um, uh, with foresight and is able to deal with real-term threats and real-time threats. And actually, it requires that different kind of capacity, and that's what we actually need to have. But also, it's absolutely evident that collaboration and cooperation is going to be key. Politics and geopolitics, and I think our history may get, us in, the, may get in the way every now and again, as we're witnessing. But sometimes we might need to actually take a leap of faith and actually come to the table in a different way. So, thank you, speakers. Thank you for, contribu for contributing a very thoughtful set of messages uh, and um, not shying away from some of the challenges that we have ahead of us. Let's, let's thank our speakers in the usual manner. We now... We now have a 25-minute uh, break. Uh, you'll resume at 10.30 to look southwards. Thank you very much.